0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Episode 8 of the Mimetic Exegete Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Scudmore. In this episode, we're going to look at the latter part of John chapter 3 from verses 22 through to verse 36. In this section, we see a really good example of an alternative to the dark world in which Jesus enters into. John the Baptizer gives us this good example of how not to engage in mimetic rivalry with those around us. So we're going to have a look at him today and discuss this passage. I mentioned in the last episode that most of the people in Jesus' day and in our day were caught on this treadmill. What I mean by that is that every one of them is looking for wholeness and fulfillment but they're looking for it in all the wrong places. We're looking around at everyone else. We're checking out Twitter. We're checking out Instagram to see who's got it together. Who has that sort of life that I want? Can I copy them? Can I imitate them so that I can have a great life too? We think that if we get that object, which that person has, or we become like that person, then we too can have an amazing, happy life. Now this is problematic for a few reasons first it doesn't work. Even if we manage to get the object that we think will make us happy, once we get it, we find that we're just as empty as when we started. So we get back on the treadmill, we chase another object, another identity, in the hope that that will fulfill us. And that's why I call this way getting on the treadmill, this way of life. Because we're always chasing, we're always striving after something, but we're never actually getting anywhere. Sometimes we might actually get the object or the thing or the person that we're striving for, but in the end we find we're back where we started. We're just as incomplete and empty as when we got on the treadmill. So until we realize that, this way of living is a continuous cycle which we just go round and around chasing our own tail unless we realize the futility of the exercise. Second, when we imitate people, we conjure up rivalry with them. Think about this for a second. Suppose I see you and you have a spouse that I want. They're attractive. They're amazing. And I think, oh man, if I could have that spouse, then I could be happy too. Because you have the spouse and because you demonstrate a great desire and a affection towards that person, I start thinking, oh yeah, that's what I want. That's what I need. And I start to imitate your desire and your affections for that spouse. I want that spouse. I need that spouse to be happy. So I start getting to know that person, spending more time with them, trying to be nice to them in the hope that they might like me too. Now. The persons who the spouse belongs to gets angry with this because it's their spouse and they become all the more determined to keep their spouse. As I demonstrate a desire for their spouse, they too grow in their desire for their spouse. So as we imitate one another, our desire for that person, that desired object, that spouse that we both want becomes stronger and stronger and it brings us into conflict because we can't both have that person. We can't both be married or in a relationship with that same person. It's a unique object. And so we compete, we strive, we become rivals, and we come in competition and strife with one another in the hope that one of us can win the hand, the affections, the love of this same person. And so you can put any object in there, as long as it's unique or rare, and two people decide that they both want this thing, and they begin to imitate each other's desire for this, then they'll be drawn into rivalry and competition, and they'll strive and wrestle against each other so that they can obtain that single object. So in this way, this imitation, this treadmill, this yearning for wholeness and being, and the attempt to find that, in the possession of an object or a person. It's a game which breeds rivalry and brings us into conflict with other people. For mine, this way of living is what John is referring to when he talks about the world being dark, shrouded in darkness. When he likens the world to a primordial world that's conceived and yearns in futility and hopelessness and lifelessness. This is the sort of conflict which breeds that sort of world. So let's consider for a moment the Roman Empire, which is the setting for John's Gospel. So Israel had been dominated by foreign overlords for about 600 years. And this political situation feeds Israel's desire to become their own the autonomous nation, maybe even to have one day their own empire. But before we talk about Israel, let's go back to the beginning. Let's consider how empires start. How do empires come into existence? We know they rise and fall, but why? Why can't nations and people just be happy with the land, the country, the territory that they live in without coveting other people's areas and lands? Mimetic theory gives us an interesting answer to this question. So let's talk about the hill people, for example. These hill people, they live up in the mountain country. They forage for food, they hunt mountain goats, they've got an ample supply of fresh water when it dribbles down the mountain. But one day someone's out foraging, someone's out collecting berries and they notice another people who live on the plain. These people have livestock because they've got ample grassland to breed their livestock. Sheep, goats, cattle, they've got all this stuff. Anyway, this person, amazed and impressed with their discovery, they run back to the village to tell the rest of the mountain people about their discovery, so everyone else comes and has a look. And they notice these plain people and what they're doing. As they look at these people, they look so happy, they're peaceful. They go about their business in a carefree lifestyle. As the mountain people observe them, they start thinking that they would like to live in the plain. They are fed up with their mountain home. They wish they could have cattle and sheep and goats. They start to daydream about happy, how happy they'd be if they lived in the plain. They started to fantasize about all the possibilities that this new pastoral lifestyle might bring to them. So, we all know what's going on here, right? These people are looking over the other side of the fence and they're seeing that the grass is greener. Well, we know it's not. Let's continue the story. What happens next? In time, the mountain people decide, you know what, we're going we're gonna to drive the plain people out of their land and take it over. So the mountain people, they train an army, they forge weapons, and eventually, when they're prepared and ready, they attack the people of the plain and they drive them out of that country. Now, the mountain people have control of both the mountains and the plains. They even make the plain people their slaves, and they make them look after the livestock for them. So now they're rich they've gathered and squirreled away more resources for themselves. But are they happy? Well, it seems great for a time, but eventually the mountain people realise, no, we're not happy. We need more. And lo and behold, they spot another people group. And these people group actually live by the ocean. They have a lovely time. They fish For and they get abundant fish and this people group would fish for fish every day bring them back to the village and all the people would eat the fish and the mountain people who are now also the plain people start to think to themselves "Hmm, how good would it be if we had fresh fish imagine if we controlled the waters and we could go and fish whenever we liked oh we'd be so happy so content So they gather all their military resources again and mount a campaign against the sea peoples who live on the coast. And again they destroy the sea peoples and take over their land. They even make some of them slaves so that they can fish for the mountain people and bring the food back to them. And you can see where this is going. Again, they discover another land, another territory, another position, and they decide that they want that one too. You see, the mountain people are on a treadmill. They think, if I just have that land, if I just have that territory, then we'll be complete. Then we'll be happy. But as we can see, the cycle keeps going and going because they're never complete. They're never happy. There's always another territory to conquer there's always another land to take possession of and with each campaign the military people of the mountains grow stronger and stronger and they're formidable and they conjure fear from their enemies and before we know it they have created their own empire and they rule over the land so that's a mimetic theory explanation of how empires rise So let's think about how they fall. Well, think about the mountain people's neighbours. They're oppressed by the mountain people, and they get to thinking that they would like their own empire. They would like to enjoy all the riches and the benefits which the mountain people enjoy. And they certainly don't want to be slaves for the mountain people. So they decide that they'll band together, they'll create their own army just like the mountain people did. They'll create their own force, forge their own weapons and they'll lead a military campaign against the mountain people in the hope that they can fell their empire and then they can take over and they can oppress the mountain people and they can be the new empire which rises. You see what's happening here is The other peoples in the story uh, have looked and seen the object of empire which the mountain people possess. They've looked and seen how do we get there? Well, through violence. We forge weapons, we create a military force and we go in and defeat the other people to take possession of the lands so that we can have that coveted object of the empire you see what's going on here the peoples of the plains and the sea peoples and the other peoples which the mountain people have conquered are imitating the mountain people because they desire that sacred object for themselves that object of the empire and through these means as more people come to desire the empire as more people come to imitate the mountain peoples eventually they muster up enough force to topple the mountain people's empire. Now they are in charge. Now they're the kings and they rule over the land. So as you can see, this cycle is destined to repeat itself. Why do empires exist? Empires exist because empires exist. And why and how do they fall? They fall because empires exist. Because people see that object and desire it and they imitate the military might which was used to obtain the empire in the first place. So let's return now to Israel, which is our setting for John's Gospel. So Israel's not immune to this mimetic treadmill. The more Israel are are dominated by their foreign overlords, the more they desire their own empire and all the benefits which come with it. This treadmill gives rise to all sorts of revolutionary movements in Israel. There's people called the Zealots in Jesus's day, who were a band of revolutionaries who wanted to overtake the Roman Empire, and all sorts of groups like this. But the only thing which keeps them in check is the fear of Roman military might. Because the people know they can't oppose Caesar, the people know they don't have the strength or ability or military muscle to take on the Roman Empire. So basically the whole system is held together by fear. Now although the people might be too fearful to mount attack against the Roman Empire itself or the temple system, they begin to look at each other for models to imitate. And this imitation breeds rivalry and strife among the people as they compete and engage in rivalry over common objects, which they think will make them whole and complete. So there's this whole world of imitation and rivalry, and that's the darkness which Jesus shines into. In today's text, John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36, we see John the Baptizer present a more constructive way of living, a more constructive way of engaging with others in the world. So, let's read this text together. From verse 22, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anan near Salem, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose among some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was, was with you on the other side of the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to them from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have sent before him. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives a spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him." So here's the situation. John is the original baptizer. In fact, he's the one who baptizes Jesus. We're told that there's a lot of people who used to go out into the desert to be baptized by John. So although John is out in the desert, on the fringes, away from the central religious establishment, he starts to gather quite a following and makes lots of disciples. And we're told in chapter 1 that John's new movement gathers the interest of the religious leaders as they come to investigate. So this detail tells us that John has grown so large that the religious leaders of the Jerusalem temple start to take notice and they come to question him. They ask him if he is the Messiah. And John says, no, I'm not. Now the religious leaders are concerned. They want to preserve their religious power and authority over the people of Israel. Although they believe that the Messiah will one day come, they don't want the Messiah to come and disrupt their reign of political and religious power. If John wanted to engage in rivalry with the religious establishment of his day, this was his big chance. But the Jewish leaders seem content with John's answer. They've obviously decided that he doesn't pose a threat to their religious order and they leave him alone to carry on his baptizing. But we're told in this passage in verse 22 that Jesus is also baptizing disciples. And John's disciples perceive Jesus' actions as a threat to their own religious movement. In verse 26, we're told that John's disciples come and say to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. For John's disciples, their identity is wrapped up in this religious movement. Perhaps they measure their own worth by the size of the community and the number of converts they make. They're not only concerned that Jesus has begun his own rival movement, but also that everyone is going to him. In other words, Jesus' arrival on the scene is threatening the desired object, that community to which they belong. Now those of you who are pastors or have ever tried to unite a group of people in a common cause, you know exactly how John's disciples feel. Jesus is stealing their sheep. And although they would probably never admit it, As their community dwindles, so does their perception of self-worth. Maybe they're also concerned about how their dwindling congregation will finance the mortgage on their new church building. With these concerns in mind, John's disciples appeal to him to do something about Jesus. What will they do? Perhaps they'll band together and badmouth him on Twitter and social media. Perhaps they'll threaten him. Perhaps they'll use violence to drive him out of the baptizing game altogether. So this is the rivalry. This is what it means to be on the treadmill. Although this rivalry never gets us anywhere and it doesn't achieve anything, we're constantly in search of this fulfillment and it produces rivalry and strife with others. But notice John represents a better way. Notice how John responds to his disciples. He says, So as I close up, let's make a couple of observations on this text. First, John considers God's role in the current events. So rather than fighting to keep his possession of the people, John is content to submit to God's will. John does not find his identity in the size of the community. This frees him to accept his dwindling congregation as God's will, and he trusts that God will provide for all his needs, even the mortgage second john freely admits that he's not the messiah john demonstrates a sort of humility here which is essential to his letting go of his congregation all too often a pastor will worry about the people who leave their congregation pastors may be genuinely concerned for their people's welfare but often there's this underlying assumption that those people were better off before they left For those of you who are pastors, perhaps reminding yourself that you are not the Messiah will allow you to release others in God's time. And third, in contrast to his disciples who fear losing their community, John actually rejoices as he sees Jesus step into his role as Messiah. John has no desire to compete with Jesus over the desired object of his disciples, but seems willing that everyone would leave his community to follow Jesus. John offers this picture of himself as Jesus' best man at a wedding. Like a best man, John does not compete with Jesus over possession of his disciples but rejoices that people are discovering Jesus as God's Messiah. Where John's disciples experience fear and jealousy, John models peace and joy. What's the difference between John and his disciples? John does not cling to his converts as desired objects to defend and engage in rivalry over. John does not see the exit of his congregation as a personal loss, but rather as a creative act, as God's creative kingdom breaks through. The image of John as Jesus' best man reveals that John never had any permanent attachment to his disciples. John always hoped that they would move on from his teaching to an even more mature spirituality. And when this comes to pass, he rejoices. For John, it's not about him, but it's about God's kingdom breaking through into people's lives. John is happy to serve as a model for his disciples for a limited time with the hope that through his example and testimony they will ultimately find Jesus and follow him themselves. John wants his disciples to graduate from his own earthly teaching to Jesus' heavenly teaching, which comes from above. He wants them to receive the Spirit without measure. He wants them to experience the life of the Messianic Age, and he knows that they can only experience these things if he releases them and they turn away from John to follow Jesus. So that's my summary of John chapter 3 verses 22 to 36. Thank you for joining me again on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.